0: everyone. Welcome back to On The Tape. I'm Guy Adami. I'm here with my friends Dan Nathan and Danny Moses. Listen, I am fired up today. and Today, we're going to be talking airlines. We were going to be talking the Biden economic policy. And later, we're going to go off the tape with a legend in the business, famed investor Jim Chanos. But first, I want to get into it right now, fellas. You know, everybody says, they're always bearish guy, blah, blah, you're always negative. I'm not always everything. I'm always good looking, but I'm always honest as well. And right now, You're talking about an S&P 500 market cap of 190% of U.S. GDP. Now, Warren Buffett looks at a number of indicators. The one major indicator he looks at is exactly that, market cap of the S&P 500 over GDP. And typically, when it reaches 120%, he's concerned, well, we're at 190% now. The warning signs are flashing. I know Danny Moses has some thoughts on this. I know Dan does as well. I'm not here to be a cheerleader. I'm just here to point out what can go wrong. One of the first things I learned at Wall Street is, you know, prepare for the worst and hope for the best. And I'm preparing for the worst right now. I see a lot of warning signs, a lot of things that concern me, a lot of the complacency that's made its way into the market vis-a-vis the volatility index. All these things are worrisome. And that's what we're going to talk about here today. Amongst other things, I know Danny has some views on the airlines. And I know Dan Nathan wants to talk about Biden's economic policy, Bidenomics, as a lot of people are going to probably call it. But Danny, what are you looking at right now? What is interesting to you as we go on the tape?
1: Well, certainly everything is flashing red as far as any of these indicators. That being said, there's still a lot of money splashing around in the marketplace. So it's tough to make a short call just on valuation. However, When you look at short interest being at the pretty much at the lows, as Dan talked about last week, kind of the bullish indicators, bearish indicators, put call ratios are at the lows. And I just think it's setting up. I think this market's priced to perfection. I think we got through kind of the transition, so to speak, of the peaceful transfer of power, if that's what we're going to call it, that went on. And now we're going to deal with the reality. And I think the market is pricing in a vaccine that hopefully works, but maybe they're pricing it in that it works a little too well or it's going to be put out there quickly and be effective. I hope that is the case, but I just think that, uh, that the risk reward here is to the downside. And when I start to see TikToks of people that are trading on Robinhood celebrating staying at home and making a lot of money, I don't need to see much more than that. But I will tell you, and we'll talk to our guest later, <laughs> comes on, uh, the signs have been here now for a while. So I'm not gonna be one to stand in front of a freight train, but certainly I, I, I think that people need to be honest with themselves. When it's just easy to make money, it never ends well.
0: Yeah, and I love the TikTok, by the way. I have a TikTok page on the YouTube, and I think I'm going to share it later on this podcast. Dan Nathan, you're laughing at me. Don't laugh at me, Dan. What are you looking at? What do you see this week that fascinated you?
2: Yeah, so it's uh, kind of a back to the future sort of situation here. You know, um, obviously, the turning of the page with the inauguration on Wednesday, it was a short holiday week. It was really interesting to me that um, the outperformance in mega cap technology stocks, there were some monster weeks. You know, Apple, which is obviously the largest market cap company in the world with $2.3 trillion, um, was up, I think, about 6.5%. Microsoft was up about 6 or so percent. You know, Google's up about 10 That's Alphabet. So what did we see this week? We saw a mad rush back into mega cap tech stocks that have actually been consolidating over the uh, last few weeks. There were very few of them, if any, if I think about Apple, Microsoft, Amazon, Google, Tesla and Facebook, the top six largest names in market make up about forty-five percent of the Nasdaq 100. They make up about twenty-four percent of the S and P 500. Eight and a half trillion dollars in market cap. And so, money after we had this big rotation, right, over the last couple of months, because in anticipation of further fiscal stimulus, low rates for longer, all that sort of stuff, a blue wave. You know, we saw that rally kind of rotate, broaden out, if you will, into some of the hardest hit stocks or sectors in the. Economy, right? So it was banks, it was energy, it was industrials, that sort of thing. So now going back into mega cap tech, that to me, while it might look bullish. It actually looks very defensive to me at this point. So I don't love to see a mad rush into the things that have worked before.
0: Yeah. And Dan, you said turn the page and that's going to lead us to our first story with Danny Moses, the airlines. But it's interesting because that was obviously a great Bob Seger song. And I know, you know, this Dan Nathan, but Metallica (laughs) did a great cover of turn the page. I think it was 1997 or so Tuesday's gone. They did on that album as well. As usual, I digress. But, Danny Moses, look, airlines are fascinating. I mentioned Bob Seger because I don't think anybody's flying to any concerts anytime soon. I keep seeing things are being canceled. What are your thoughts on the airlines as we go on the tape with you?
1: Delta reported last week, obviously, no one was expecting a good quarter. They continue to say they'll be burning ten to $15 million a day. We saw a couple of more earnings this week. Uh, specifically, I think United Airlines lost $7 a share but let's go back in last March when they first got what they called PSP, which the government granted them money for payroll, which I think is a good thing because you're talking about a lot of employees that are out there. So I think the, the first round was uh, roughly $25 billion, and now they're giving them another $17 billion. Of that, the $42 billion, you can figure out, like, you know, American Airlines got 5.8, United got 5, Delta got 5.6 the first time around. Within that, 70% of that, like I said, goes for payroll, and that's kind of forgiven. The other 30% is like a 10-year loan. And of that 30%, 10% is granted to the taxpayer as a shareholder because the government's going to get warrants in the companies at those prices. All that being said, just get rid of all that. The, the, The value of these companies obviously has been hit on the equity side. The debt continues to trade surprisingly very well. And I don't think that the market's pricing in, I think they're pricing in a very rosy outcome. That things going to quote you know return to normal. The airlines themselves on these calls are telling you they don't expect business travel to come back for eighteen to twenty four months. They expect leisure travel to come back. However, we're all sitting here with a lot of miles in our account. We haven't traveled, so we should trade you know travel on business, travel with our family. The first thing that consumers are going to do when they start traveling again is to use miles anyway. As a matter of fact. Both United and Delta, I believe, have lent money against those against that asset. And so that's not really being appreciated. The other thing I'll say, which is a good thing, especially United, I think their cargo growth was up 77% in the quarter. Delta, I think, was up 10. A lot of these airlines are retrofitting some of their passenger planes for cargo. So all of a sudden, listen, if they can become an e-commerce story, maybe you change the multiple a bit here. But there's a lot of debt on these companies. I think Delta's got $29 billion of debt. I think that, you know, it's not much different for uh, United. And I just don't see how the equity is trading at at these prices. And I think I said before, Zoom, just for instance, has taken about an increase of 90 billion market cap. And they actually just raised money last week, as you guys saw in an offering, a couple of billion dollars. They've increased about 90 billion. Well, if you add up the airlines and some of the hotel industry, you'll find 90 billion where this kind of went. So I hate to say it, but uh, I think these things have gotten a little bit ahead of themselves.
2: Well, it's funny. You mentioned Zoom and, and, you know, obviously a winner of the pandemic, if you will, um, a huge pull forward, but a huge, I, I guess you would say, you know, they really created a sort of behavior that it you know, we'll, we'll just be here to stay for, for some time. That stock though is down from $600. It's below $400 here. You know, the market cap at one point was getting near Cisco's, which has a competing product. I, I just think that a, there's so many themes here. It's just like, it seems like you're bearish on the airlines, right? There's some some structural changes that are going to happen the way business travelers operate going forward. But then if you look at like a Zoom and you say to yourself, well, this is not particularly sustainable at this valuation, right? With that market cap and trading at about 31 times next year's uh, sales seems a little crazy. And then I bring you to another one. It's kind of in the same theme, Danny and Guy. You might have something to say in this. Airbnb, obviously, which went public late last year, has a $100 billion market cap. So if the airlines, obviously, the balance sheets are, are are a bit different here, but there's no earnings and they won't really be profitable for some time. You know, your, your argument about the combined airline market caps and debt, you know, look at Airbnb relative to the, the hotel industry. I, I guess what I'm saying is there's lots of pairs here that absolutely make no sense, especially in an environment where there's very little
1: visibility about when we are on the other side of this virus. One thing I, I want to comment on Zoom, and I'm, I don't, I'm not long Zoom and nothing we say here, obviously, is any type of investor recommendation. Yeah. But they, they did raise a couple billion dollars in the low 300s, I believe, last week. And that's what these companies should be doing. If you have expensive currency, either use that currency to make acquisitions, or go raise capital and become a self-fulfilling prophecy. And Tesla is taking advantage of that. and every time you do say Tesla, I go into a hypnotic trance because it sends me down a dark, dark place. But that being said, if I'm these companies, that's a smart thing to do. And then it becomes self-fulfilling. So go make acquisitions. And they want to compete with Cisco and Microsoft, obviously, Zoom. They're trying to go after that market. And it'll become more than just Zoom. It, believe me, they'll be offering other services other than just the way that we're talking you know, today. So again, I'm not making a call on Zoom. But to your point, Dan, if I'm a business and I'm looking and I, I was spending you know, $200 million on a huge budget on business travel, the first thing I'm slashing— is going to be business travel because now there's much more efficient ways that have now become acceptable. And so, again, I don't want the airline business to go out out of business, but I'll tell you this, Delta is the only airline that's still blocking the middle seat. And, you know, they're actually charging more uh, per seat than any other airline right now, and people are paying it because they don't want to sit next. But you know what? They're ending that March 31st. Is what they said when they're going to end that. So there's not a lot of leverage to pull here for the for the airlines, and I expect a lot more bailouts. And so it is what it is. So just know when you when you're flying now on a, in a seat as a taxpayer, you own a piece of it. And it's
0: interesting, Danny. I want to ask you this: Dan Nathan, I'm sure has some thoughts, but you mentioned that Zoom did a raise. I, listen, I think the price was around three hundred thirty dollars, you know, ish. So don't at me um, on the Twitter. But you're talking about a stock that ran up to five hundred and eighty-eight dollars, seemingly just a month, month and a half ago. If I'm management. You had to be prepared. I would ask them the first question to Zoom would be, hey, folks, uh, great job on the raise. Where were you when the stock was north of 500? Danny, is that a legit question?
1: I mean, it is. And that just tells you that they weren't expecting their stock to go to 500. So I think when they took a deep breath, believe me, you know, the bankers were calling them. The bankers were calling them at 200, 300, 400, 500. And so they actually had considered raising debt is what they had said. So I'll give them credit for they may tell you where they think their equity might be worth. So from a cost of capital perspective, they took advantage of that and they think that'll be lower over the longer term to do it up at those prices. So um, they had been planning a debt offering from what I understand, but
2: no, yeah. You know, I have a question for you, Guy Adami. We've been talking about it a bit on Fast Money over the last week or so. What do you make of the re-ratings that we're seeing here in Ford and GM? Both stocks are up 30% on a, in, on the year, literally in a straight line over the last two and a half, three weeks or so. You know, obviously, both have some pretty exciting EVs that are coming out this year, Ford in particular, that Mustang Mach E, the crossover SUV, then this whole new series of Broncos. One of them, a sport is going to be an EV. We know that GM um, is pushing hard. We saw that Microsoft investment in GM's cruise, which is obviously their autonomous group there. But, you know, what, what do you make of that? And, and will we see finally a re-rating of this group? And is the competition finally here in 2021 for Tesla?
0: You know, we're going to have a conversation. I'm sure SPACs are going to come up um, with Jim Chanos in a little while. And I know Danny has some thoughts on that as well. And Karen Feynman made a great point on the show uh, earlier this week, Fast Money, that if you were just, if you just put like a sort of SPAC valuation or if you brought a SPAC into GM, you know, what would we be talking about in terms of stock price? And I said to her, you know what? If you just put then an S&P market multiple on this, you're talking about a $120 stock for General Motors, which is not going to happen, by the way. But to answer your question, Dan, I think after a decade, the markets finally realize that, wait a second, maybe GM is going to be viable. Maybe they do have a foothold in this EV space. And maybe the six multiple that we've been giving them is the wrong multiple. And I think they're quickly getting into not a market multiple, if you think about it, but At a 10 multiple for General Motors, it's going to earn $6 a share. You're talking about, obviously, a $60 stock. And then you can do the math from there. Forward multiple in the S&P 500 right now is basically 24, give or take. So do the math. You know, you give them half of the market multiple. And you're talking about a $72 market stock. And I think that's what investors and traders are sort of wrapping their head around now. Danny, I don't know if you have any thoughts on that, but that's the way I look at it.
1: Yeah, I think there's a EV catch-up, obviously, because it's asinine where these EV stocks trade. But I also think it's a, it's directly you know, related to stimulus checks. You know, we're getting another round here that's going to come. That's what Biden's going to enforce. The first thing that people do with that, obviously, some of the things they do with that is maybe buy a car. I think we saw that last time. And they're not buying airline tickets they're buying cars so again back to the theme of i'm going to get around by car more than i am on airline that's one that you're going to stay local more than more than travel around so i think it's a confluence of events macro and micro there but uh listen tesla has certain days where a market cap moves more than the entire u.s auto industry market caps put together okay so we're at a point now if you want to just on a relative basis i would say that uh ford and gm are the two cheapest stocks in the universe. Relative to Tesla, but I think Tesla's expensive. Well,
2: so. all right, Danny, I got one for you here because this is one that Guy and I have kind of punted around on on fast money, and it's in the auto space here. How do you how do you rectify like how do you look at a Carvana with a forty four billion dollar market cap, right? So it's an online basically used car dealer, okay, trading about five and a half times sales, expected to have five and a half billion in sales this year. And then you have an auto nation, okay, which does four times the amount of sales. Half of their sales are actually online now. They're pushing very hard into that. And it's got a $6.6 billion market cap. You know, the valuation is crazy. It's very profitable. Carvana loses a shit ton of money here. So I just think that there's in every part of the market, you can find these crazy discrepancies that just don't make any sense so far. And that's one of the reasons why I really fear that there will be some sort of growth reckoning in the not so distant future. And it might be that moment where people start thinking about rates going higher or whatever the heck it is, or a double dip recession, because the pandemic is never going to go away and the vaccine rollout is really not going to do the thing. What, what is your take on just like a business model like that and the discrepancy in valuations between an automation and a Carvana?
1: You know, it comes down to one thing, Robinhood. And I think that you have a new group of investors that are buying themes and ideas and stories and they're not they're not doing bottom up work. And sometimes that pays off for the short term, but it'll always bite you in the end. And I go back to my opening comments on the show. There A lot of stocks that are priced to perfection, or more than perfection, and the market is what it. It's not going to take much, Dan. To your point, if the, God forbid there's a restatement of earnings for any of these companies, you won't even the stock won't even open. And this is what we talk about: staircase up, elevator down. As a short seller, right? It's it's been a hard fight. Uh, you know, and we'll talk to one of the best short sellers of all time in a few minutes. But it's been a hard fight because the fundamentals haven't mattered. When will they matter again? I completely agree with you. The CarMax and the AutoNation models are better than the Carvana. I think people like the idea of what Carvana is doing, right? By cutting out kind of the middleman. Oh, that's great. That's great. But they're not, you know, to your point, you can't justify that valuation. It makes no sense. So I agree with you. I just think it's indicative of what's been going on. And it, that is a poster child. That's one of the few you would like create top 10 posters for what the 99-2000 uh, move of what we're going to have here in 2000, let's call it 21 and 22, That'll be one of them more than likely. So,
0: I had a Lawrence Taylor poster in the 80s. Uh, and, and, and just to sort of put things in perspective, Carvana has the same market cap as Ford, and Ford has rallied, and Carvana's come off. I think they're both around $47 billion, which is just, again, puts me in the same trance that Tesla puts you in. But we're going to go off the tape in a minute with famed investor Jim Chainos. We'll be right back. We're back, and we're going off the tape with famed investor, and I do say famed because he is Jim Chanos. Jim is a legend, and I know Jim watches Fast Money all the time, and he must pull his hair out when he hears some of the things that come out of my mouth because, you know, on the IQ scale, Jim's north of 200 and I'm south of 100, but Jim's with us now. I would read his bio, but the Gettysburg address is shorter, so Jim, we're going to get right into it. Thanks for being on the tape, and we're going to off the tape with you now. I'm going to start real quick. The markets are nuts. You
3: know, what are your thoughts quickly before we get to Danny Moses? Well, well, first of all, Guy and and everyone else, thanks for having me. I, I really do enjoy Fast Money and seeing you guys and and seeing Guy rail against the Fed and all the insanity going on in the markets, and then recommend most of my shorts during the course of every every hour. So. Uh, It's nice to see you guys on this, and I'm happy to do it. Listen, we talked about it earlier on the
0: tape. Some of the exuberance we're seeing in terms of market cap of the S and P 500 over GDP, the city panic euphoria index. I mean, there are about 18 different indicators that are flashing red. But just your thoughts, briefly, in terms of what you're seeing and what your thoughts are here.
3: Something changed in this intergalactic bull market, which was going on 10 years at the end of 18, when we had that sell off and and. The Fed reversed course, and I really kind of take a look at this market right now as having its last, the leg that we're in now. Who knows? But uh, starting in December of 18, and uh, despite the panic sell-off in, uh, for COVID in March, this has been kind of a recurring theme, right? So retail has gotten more and more invested as commission rates have come down, and and, and apps like Robinhood have gotten more popular. And uh, you know, and then mixing algorithmic trading and and a heavy amount of passive investing, and it's kind of a witch's brew for valuations not only not mattering but all kinds of questionable businesses being floated. And I've I've joked that everyone is sort of relying on the printing presses that the Fed has, but now we're finally at the point in this 10-year, 11-year bull market, 12-year bull market, I guess, where Wall Street has dusted off its printing press, and it's now creating uh, pieces of paper. Uh, as fast as the public wants to buy them, I think we're doing about two to three billion in SPACs a night as we speak, which I pointed out a week ago is uh, akin to about at this point almost 40-50% of the national savings rate is uh, of a 1.2 trillion is going into SPACs. That's a
2: pretty amazing
3: number if you think about it.
2: Well, Jim, you know, that's, that's interesting. And that obviously that's been a very recent trend um over the last call it, you know, year to year and a half, but, you know, just thinking about this year in particular already, we have the NASDAQ up 4%. We were talking about it a bit earlier. This holiday shortened week, we saw the major mega cap tech stocks, the top six, you know what they are, $8.5 trillion in market cap on average rise about you know 4% or 5% this week. So all of a sudden, you have all this new issuance in the SPAC market. You have all of these recent IPOs, which we were talking about Airbnb with a $100 billion market cap, DoorDash with a $60 billion market cap. Obviously, some of the older ones, Uber has a $100 billion market cap. And then you see the plowing back into the Apples, the Amazons, the Microsoft, the Google. What is that saying to you about where we are here? Because there seems to be no shortage of demand for these, uh, whether it's the, the highest price things or the things with the least transparency or the ones that we know are the most defensive, but also the biggest.
3: Well, I can even top that. The Goldman Sachs basket of of the most heavily shorted stocks. All right, now listen carefully, guy, was up 40%, over 40% in 2020, and is up over 20% so far in the first three weeks of 2021. And whatever you might say about the Bulls versus the Bears, I mean, it's not that people are shorting these for no good reason. And generally, you know, academic studies have shown over long periods of time heavily shorted stocks massively underperform the market. And so what we're seeing is demand for almost everything, as you indicate right now, enhanced I think by leverage, by certainly new amounts of capital coming into the market from retail investors, but also options trading, which is in effect margin trading, and then margin debt itself, which is exploding. So everybody is getting levered long into arguably some of the diciest things in the market with the assumption that they can, can't lose. And that is a prescription for at least at some point, I would think, a bit of a reality check. And uh, I'm not here to call short term market moves, but boy, it sure seems like everyone's on one side of the boat right now thinking they can't uh, they can't lose. We'll see.
1: Hey, Jim, uh, on that, you know, and I to- total agreement with you. Um, we ended the year with hedge funds chasing Grosses went to the highest level of the year. Nets went to the highest levels of the year. So yeah, you had leverage going on and short covering at the same time, which is a wicked brew, as you had said. We're in this golden age of of fraud, as you've, as you've talked about. I think when it's done, it'll be the Iron Age, the Bronze Age, the Golden Age. And Robinhood has been able to kind of enhance this, the access to market. It feels a little bit like every single era where, where we've had a massive correction in the market. It's got a little bit of 1999. And it. it's got a little bit of 2007. in it. it's got a little bit of everything in it. So yeah. I'm just wondering, with the change in Washington, do you think there'll be any teeth at all? Certainly, there'll be more teeth. And hopefully, we can be hopeful that whether it's the CFPB, the SEC, we've already seen a little bit of crypto criticism go out and look what it did to the markets in, in one day. I'm just curious, are, do you have any hope at all that we should rely on Washington for anything?
3: Well, I never try to rely on Washington for any of our investments. That's generally a fool's errand. But you would be remiss not to notice that there is a changing of the guard here. And I would say that President Biden's picks so far in the world that affects the markets, specifically the uh, Gary Gensler at SEC and uh, the new fellow at uh, the, the Consumer Finance Protection Bureau, um, certainly have a different outlook if you read their history and and, you know, Gary Gensler at CFTC was a fairly tough regulator during the Obama years. So I I do think you will see at least uh, a little bit more on the enforcement side and and, and looking at areas like SPACs. And I mentioned this morning, for example, that one of the, the appeals to SPACs beyond just the sort of hidden promotes and all the other things people have pointed out is the simple fact that SPACs allow you to make public projections where IPOs do not. And so you can actually, you know, put out these one-pagers, as they're called, to show people just how big your TAM is or how much your revenues are going to go up over the next five years. And and it's protected by safe harbor. And so, you know, that is a real, real recipe for problems for people that, that shall we say, are not 100% honest. And, uh, you know, yes, you might want to have investors dream, but if you're knowingly putting out kind of crazy projections
1: out there in order to raise money that's really uh, an end run around the securities laws and we uh, we actually talked about that and i think that's a big issue because it's one thing to announce us back and go public it's a second thing to have a pipe and find a target it's a third thing to close the deal and then you know kind of put out your first quarterly report we are we are an inning 1 of kind of the first quarterly reports of all these companies and yes some might make numbers but to your point that's when i think the reckoning might occur it's like what do i own What is this? And buyer beware, because there is no recourse at the moment. And if something were to change in Washington, I mean, it would take one headline from the SEC saying, you know, 4.02 p.m., SEC moles not allowing SPACs to give future forecasts. I mean, that's we are at a point, I think, in the market in general where we're priced to perfection. It wouldn't take much. Now, I want to just caveat by saying, and I think, Jim, you would agree, there will be successful SPACs, but 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 if you're a long, short guy like me. You're you're happy these things are coming out. You need more inventory in your in your in your wheelhouse to come out and 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 find something.
3: There are some days I think I don't need any more inventory, but, but I I, I got you. You. I know, <laughs> I know <laughs> what you mean.
1: One other thing just on the um sell-side research in general, which you and I both know is just long only. We lived through the Blodgett days and the quadrone days and we thought things had changed. I've never seen a reversion back that's that's more corrosive than the no Chinese wall any longer between research and banking. I mean, I'm saying, I'm stating the obvious to you, but, but you know, you got to use that to your advantage, I guess, at times. But this positive reinforcement mechanism that you've talked about before, that gives investors this false sense of security, I'd love to get your thoughts on where we are on the Wall Street world of research at this point.
3: I would agree with that, and and it goes hand in glove with my theories on the fraud cycle, which is the longer bull markets and business expansions go on, the more people suspend their sense of disbelief. And the more the ability to fool them, and the corollary to that would be the less the regulators seem to care. And 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 so I've always joked that the the greatest defense attorney, and and most vicious prosecutor of a company is its stock price. It's not until people start losing money, that they begin to question what they what they own, why they own it, what they were told, um, and and you know the recommendations. You know I would point out that the the crackdown by Elliott Spitzer on Wall Street research occurred well after the market had peaked in 2000, and 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 the wave of fraud we saw starting with en- Enron and WorldCom also happened after people were down their f- first 50 percent. And you know, the human nature is to say, "I didn't make a bad investment decision. These people are all crooks." Um, now, certainly, there were companies where there were crooks, but. The point being is it's all part of one one sort of melange in that everybody's sense of euphoria is enhanced and disbelief is is restricted the longer the bull market goes on and research is just part of that and of course an sec that's willing to look the other way and a regulatory environment that's willing to look the other way while everybody's making lots of money is i just think another you know ingredient to that stew and i'm mixing so many metaphors here but anyway
2: so, Jim, you mentioned that you thought that the, the latest leg of this bull market really started at the lows um, in, in late 2018, and, and you referenced yeah. the, the kind of 35% peak to trough decline that we had from the February 2020 highs to really, I mean, I think we bottomed to March 23rd, um, and it wasn't, you know, it just took three or four months to get back to those prior highs. You know, for some of us who've been trading markets for 25 years, um, we remember what the 2000 dot-com implosion felt like. It Was a a really protracted bear market. We topped out in March 2000. We really didn't bottom until October 02, March 03, and then again during the financial crisis, we topped out in November 07, bottomed out in March of 09. We have 50 percent peak to trough declines. There was the fraud in each of those cases that was unfolding. You know, after the market had bottomed, but it really was kind of sticking around for a while. What is the next? Real sell off look like in your opinion? And given what the Fed has just done in each of these um, declines, the, they were bear markets coupled with economic recessions. You know, we see now that the Fed has added what, $3.5 trillion to their balance sheet in just the last year or so. Are we ever going to have protracted bear markets again?
3: <laughs> I think we probably will. I don't think human nature has changed that much, but. But I, I think the analog, if you want to look at this market as somewhat similar in tone to the, the market of the late 90s, remember that the Fed was starting to take away the punch bowl in 97 and 98 in that market. And we had a little thing called LTCM in Russia in the, in the fall of 98. And the Fed reversed course dramatically and immediately in that period and began cutting rates again. And, and very similar to what Powell did in December of 2018. And, and that was the green light to, to basically do the last party. And that's what brought on 99 and the first couple of months of 2000, was the fact that at that point, everyone said, look, we have a Greenspan put. I remember it vividly, and I, and I bet some of you guys do too, that anytime the markets go down, these guys are gonna aggressively cut. And so I can't lose and party on. And that occurred right through till the Fed started to get nervous again. I think started hiking rates in late 99 as things got euphoric and the market kept going for another couple of months. But what happened in December of 18 reminds me a lot of what happened in late 98 um, when, when it looked like the world was coming to an end because of an exogenous event and the Fed, Fed blinked. And so I think, you know, we're setting ourselves up for something similar. Now, look, things change, right? I mean, uh, it's not a static world. We like to think that what's happening now is what's going to continue to happen. But we don't know what's going to happen. I mean, we don't know that inflation doesn't actually start to kick up to three or four percent or nominal growth is so hot that people start to get worried or whatever it might be. Um, I mean, no one was thinking about a pandemic 12, 13 months ago. So I think that to be able to say that there's ever going to be another bear market again, I would probably take the other side of that argument. At some point, some of this stuff uh, will will come back to reality, I suspect. One thing I've learned
0: doing fast money for the last 46 years is, you know, if you're always bullish, always sort of optimistic, there's really no um, you don't pay the price for that. But when you try to point out you know some of the things that can go wrong or potentially will go wrong, people come at you in spades. And, you know, if you notice when I introduced you, I didn't say famed short seller. I said famed investor. And I, and I believe that because I think you're a seeker of truth. Danny Moses spoke to that. But I guess my question to you is, does it piss you off that you get labeled? And do you think it's unjustified? You know, I'm part of the media and, and I take some responsibility for that. But you know, do you find it a badge of honor or you just sort of aggravate you?
3: Well, I, th- I think you may, may or maybe you don't know that most of, most of our accounts are run hedged. And so, uh, you know, we, we make our excess returns on the short side, although not recently, but over, over history. And so, you know, I, I, I joked yesterday, I, I think I posted yesterday that, that what's so, one of the interesting conundrums of finance is that equity market indices tend to reflect economies over time and tend to rise over time. But most companies, i.e. stocks, fail over time. It's one of the great conundrums of finance is why is it most companies fail, but equity indices uh, you know, rise over time. Well, a lot of it has to do with what comprises an index and, and things like that. But our strategy has basically been in our hedge fund to be passive on the long side and then look for idiosyncratic opportunities on the short side. That, by and large, has been a really good strategy. Uh, not though for the last two years.
1: I'll just dovetail on that point that Guy made, but one of my former partners, Vincent Daniel, always said, if you're on the sell side and you make a short call and you're wrong, you lose your job. If you're on the sell side and you're long and you get it wrong, you still have your job. So, so you know, that goes without saying. Um, some of the other stuff that's, that's out there right now, you know, 10B51 plans, which I think need to be changed. I'd love to get your thoughts on that and some of the other kind of technical things that are out there in the market. And I want to ask one other thing also on top of that is that you're 100% right. It's the stock prices that have been causing the investigative work to go on after what you've already uncovered years ahead. I'll point out Wirecard, which which you which, which you obviously nailed. So sorry to throw that all at you. I want to get your thoughts on insider selling using the 10 b 51 and then maybe why it takes a stock price and the water to go out to really start to look deeper.
3: The 10B plans, I, I think, like all, all these things, start with good intentions, right? So- so if you have a, a standard plan where you sell just a set amount of stock you know, every month on an autopilot, you, no one can ever accuse you of knowing something ahead of time. It's a 10b5, You know, I do it every month. But as, as you no doubt know, that has been sort of bastardized to the point now where people file very big 10b5 and then they, they alter the amount of shares they sell. And, um, and so I think that, that that's one problem. The other problem, of course, with equity-based compensation, and, and I've said this for years, and investors always find it out the hard way, is that if there's no governance issues. If there are no recriminations for making really big mistakes in the boardroom, anytime a CEO or a CFO or COO gets a big stock option package, he is and she are, is also getting a set of puts as well as calls. And why do I say that? Well, because for the obvious reason that if a company embarks on a highly risky set of moves, say acquisition spree, and it doesn't work out, and the stock goes from 100 to 10, well, the shareholders get get clobbered. But if that C-suite is still intact when the stock is 10, guess who's getting another whole bunch of options struck at $10 next year? The C-suite. So they've, in effect, enriched themselves if they get the stock back up and in effect made money by the stock going down. It's again, another one of the conundrums of finance. When people think about stock option packages, they never factor in the fact that, that in effect, managers can get rich if the stock actually goes down and they keep their jobs. So that, that's an idea I've long talked about that people sort of don't think about very much. Number three, that people really only start looking at, at, you know, what do I own? Can you send me the file you know, after the stock is down 30%? Um, wait, why are we in this? Um, when stocks are trending up, nobody cares. And, and we see uh, analysts uh, chasing stock prices higher with higher targets. And nobody really starts looking at their holdings until they start losing money. And that applies to both, both the bulls and the bears. I know that when, when a short's not working, I, I'm sort of you know, reexamining every aspect of the thesis and, and looking at the numbers again and again and talking to my analysts and saying, why are we, what, what do we think we have here? Um, on the long side, it works the same way, maybe even more so, but that uh, people just don't care until they start losing money.
1: I'm going to turn this back over to Dan, but I just wanted to echo one of your comments. I think you said, but you know, this adjusted earnings adjusted EBITDA where stock-based comp is taken out is ridiculous. And, you know, so people are working for free in essence. Is that, you know, is that the question? Anyway, I wanted to, Close the loop on that, but I agree. It's something that's not. It's apples and oranges.
2: You know, obviously, there's a, a bubble, a, a bit of euphoria, um, both on the investor side, but 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 also just a, an investment race by major corporations too on the this electric vehicle, autonomous thing. We were talking about it a bit earlier. You know, the other day when Microsoft made an investment in the GM's Cruise, their their autonomous group, the stock was up. Um, 10%. We obviously know that they have a bunch of EV vehicles coming out. This is a company that does over you know $100 billion in auto sales a year. And, and the day that the stock GM was up 10%, it gained 1% of Tesla's market cap. Tesla is a company that has less than 1% market share globally, and GM has what? Close to 10% or so. How, how, how are we supposed to think about this? Because now GM and Ford are being re-rated. They're both up 30% this year. Will it be a mean reversion trade or will we realize that uh, you know will, will will Tesla finally get hit in 2021 2022 by this onslaught of competition that's coming
3: well i can do you one better like think globally Dan, the real v, the real ev market leader that is emerging is vw they have come from nowhere with their own brand the, the id3 in europe and and soon to be the id3 and 4 in the us as well as Audi and Porsche, which they own. And they are now the market leader in the globe's biggest EV market, the EU. Um, Tesla, I think, is, is down to three or four in market share in the EU. And it's one of the big stories about Tesla that nobody's talking about, is that the, the largest... Um, so last year, the US market for EVs barely grew. It was up one or 2% uh, in units. China grew 9%, which I think would surprise some people because I think people think China's growing a lot faster than that in EVs. They're not. The big growth was in Europe, where I think the growth was almost 50%. But Tesla is not the market leader there. VW is. and I think that that's that's what's fascinating is part of the Tesla canon is that not only is Tesla the market leader, but the uh, the ice dinosaurs the internal combustion engine dinosaurs are dead they don't know how to do this and vw is showing you right now as we speak that they in fact do know how to do this they're outselling tesla the biggest market in the world and so that story runs very counter to the entire tesla narrative that no one else knows how to do this and that's just simply not true anymore
1: you know jim on the Tesla and we could do a whole separate podcast on that. And I know you've you've talked about it that nauseum. I'm trying to think back when the jump to shark moment was because it you know, even though it was egregiously valued ninety percent ago, we felt like on the margin it was trading on fundamentals. That you know there were certain things that they could do. Oh, can they ever make money? Oh, what are the revenues and orders gonna be? you know, one of the things that happened was their ability to raise capital, which he should be doing every day, by the way. If I were, if I were Elon Musk, I'd raise $100 billion today. And we I mean, just keep proving that you get a money in the balance sheet and it, it, quote, isn't a zero. When was this jump the shark moment that I missed the memo on where we took off from, you know, I think it was, I don't even remember the date, but let's call it a year ago. What do you think that was?
3: It was October, November of uh, 19. If you remember, Tesla had gone nowhere in five years. The stock was range bound. Uh, between basically 200 and 350 before the split for a better part of five years. And the stock traded on fundamentals. It traded on, on stories and, and developments. And it, it coincided with the explosion in retail that we saw in the fourth quarter of 19 with Robinhood investors and digital apps. And the stock became and is, I think, the bellwether at this point for retail investors. I mean, I think this is... Very akin to what AOL was in the dot-com era, super large cap, uh, something that everybody knew or, or used or whatever, top-line growth, no profitability, but going to own the world. If you remember, AOL was going to own the internet in the late 90s because it's what everybody used to access the internet. You could also compare it to Cisco, which was the hardware equivalent, which had similar stock chart. And, and everybody knew networking was, was going to happen and in any way shape or form if you had networking you had to use cisco equipment so cisco just went parabolic if you look at the tesla chart and the cisco chart of the last two years, it's the same chart, the exact same chart.
2: So Jim, I'm looking at the chart right here and I just want to ask you a quick question though, because on November 16th, Tesla was trading at $400. It was down um, from $500. It's September 2nd, all time high. The stock literally felt like, it looked like it was about to roll over here, right? So the S&P 500, they make this announcement, it's gonna be added. And all of a sudden, the stock goes from 400, literally to 600 in, in about a week and a half, two weeks, consolidated around 600 and now here we are at $835 or something like that. Have you ever seen anything like that based on you know just one announcement? I mean, give, give us some context there.
3: That's what happened in late 99 and early 2000. Stocks that had doubled and then doubled again, doubled in January of, uh, of 2000 and, and then doubled again in the first two weeks of February. 2000. And you had the, you, that's what parabolas do, right? I mean, and no price is too high to pay once they do that. And yeah, I mean, it, it is really incredible. And analysts have, have scrambled to try to justify it, but the, the numbers are clearly crazy. And uh, this has a $1 trillion market cap at this point. It's bigger than all the other o, auto OEMs combined. As I said, many of whom are now outselling Tesla in the EU. And so, you know, it's the poster child. It is literally the poster child, I think, for this bull market. It is a bellwether. It is massively, massively owned and hyped by retail investors. We have all the obligatory stories of Tesla, you know, millionaires um, living in their parents' basement, and God bless them. Um, And, you know, so this is
1: it. This is the it girl of this bull market. Jim, I have no doubt that you'll be right on Tesla, which means that I'll be somewhat right at some point on Tesla. But uh, you have some great you have some great stories in the past. And, you know, you had the Baldwin piano that turned into an insurance company. You had the Commodore Interactive. You had integrated resources. But I think my favorite story and I was actually around a dinner table when you told it was Coleco. And I just think it's a great lesson. I'd love you to tell the story about the kind of the you had already been shorted, but like what really finalized it for you, because this is what investors should be doing. Now, they might not have access to everything, but in order to pay attention. Anyway, I'd love you to tell that story if you don't mind.
3: Yeah. So Coleco was a toy company that was best known for the the handheld football games that I know Guy was probably, you know, uh, winning lots of money, uh, beer money from his fraternity brothers in college. (laughs) The handheld Coleco football game. When the PC boom uh, occurred in in 82, 83, the PC was IBM's man of the year in, in 1982. Everybody was rushing in to join the hardware business, including Seiko. Seiko made a PC. People forget. Coleco wanted to jump in, but do so via the toy route as sort of an enhanced video game platform, similar to Atari or Intellivision by Mattel. And so with a lot of fanfare, they introduced the Atom Home Computer, the June Consumer Electronics Show in 1983 in Chicago. And we found out later that it was basically an Apple II under the uh, display case, um, running all the programs. But, uh, but up on the, on the giant screen behind the CEO, um, it was uh, supposedly the Atom running through its paces for video games and simple word processing and things like that. So the stock took off, and it just went parabolic, um, because here was this toy maker that was going to get in and compete with IBM and Apple and, and, uh, and uh, Warner Communications, Atari, and so on. It attracted the, the cranks like me, the short sellers, who after the stock kind of quadrupled, like, wait a minute, making PCs is not that easy. And, and a bull battle ensued. But in order to silence the critics, they invited anybody who wanted to attend to a tour of their factory outside of Albany in the fall of 83 as they were rushing to get the computer out. And so I, I was in New York at the time as a, I was a sell side analyst for Deutsche Bank. So I took them up along with a bunch of other people, and, and took the tour. And one of the things that I and a couple of other uh, people noticed right away was that there was a disproportionate number of people on the assembly line wearing the same black rock and roll concert T-shirt. And I think it was ACDC, if I remember correctly, a tour shirt. So when we got a chance, it was sort of the we were being chaperoned through the factory, the other thing that I noticed right away was that they were single soldering the circuit boards instead of wave soldering them. If you know anything about manufacturing, you know that's a prescription for disaster for something like a computer, because all you need is one bad solder and the product's gonna you know, fail. Anyway, there was a, an analyst from Gilder Gagnon, I won't, I won't give his name, but uh, he and I were, were, and we were both short the stock. And at one point we sort of slipped back behind the group and pulled one of the workers aside who clearly had not slept that night before. And we asked him, why are you guys all wearing the same t-shirt? And he said that Coleco had set up a, uh, a thing outside the, uh, the arena in Albany, wherever the concert was, the night before, and was offering people an attractive eight-hour gig to come to the factory and, uh, and assemble computers. It was obviously for our purposes. It was a Potemkin village similar to the Enron fake trading floor for analysts. And that was one of these things, this was uh, before cell phones, individual cell phones were attached to your car back then. So it was when we could get to lunch and fight over the payphone to call our offices to tell them, you know, borrow more stock. About a month or so later, Consumer Reports came out and they'd gotten their hands on the first Atom computers for Christmas. And I, if I remember correctly, the, the, the best part about it was, the first one didn't work out of the box, so then they got a second one. That didn't work out of a box. And then they stopped, I think, at the fourth one, which didn't work out of the box. And needless to say, the stock collapsed. The sad news was I didn't cover my short and didn't notice that that Christmas they had another product that ended up doing okay called the Cabbage Patch Dolls. <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> <laughs> so I had, to work, I had to ride that wave back up for two years uh, before the company other, utterly collapsed. By having too many Cabbage Patch dolls, and they ultimately went bankrupt on Cabbage Patch, not Adam. That's a great story. I mean, there's a saying in sports betting, and I bring that
0: up because I want to just sort of end it with that. They don't pay at halftime. So you were celebrating your win at halftime, and then Premature. obviously you had a huge Premature enzo like, dancing,
3: 15-yard penalty. Exactly.
0: Leon Lett, for those of you fans that remember. So, Jim, <laughs> listen, thanks for spending time. That's a great story, but we can't let you go. Uh, I know you were born in, I believe, the great state of Wisconsin, which by definition means you have to be a Packer of Green Bay fan. Obviously, they play this week. And give me your thoughts on these championship games before we get out of here. Yeah,
3: I, I, I'm a cheesehead. Bears still suck. Green Bay's legendary sort of last general manager, Ted Thompson, passed away yesterday. For a lot of reasons, I think the Packers seem particularly motivated this year. I know they lost to Tampa Bay pretty badly in the season. And you've got this great matchup with Brady and Rodgers, kind of a marquee matchup. They seem hungrier than usual to me. I think they realize they may only have a few more years with Rodgers. And the, the team is playing, you know, well right now. Uh, you know, I certainly hope they win. I think Tampa Bay's defense is going to give them a game. I think it could be close. But I'm hoping to be able to attend the Super Bowl in Tampa Bay uh, in a couple of weeks. So we're going to keep our fingers crossed. And I'm going to eat my lucky bratwurst before the game. And root the Packers on. In the AFC, I, is Mahomes playing? I don't even
0: know. Has not been ruled out yet. So, I mean, it's 50, it looks like it's a coin flip at this point.
3: I mean, I would love to see you know, Packers against either of those two teams. It would be a great old school matchup. The, the Packers Chiefs would be the, a reprise of the very first Super Bowl, uh, which I know you remember, guy. And, uh, and then, uh, but even Packers Bills would be this great winter, two winter teams, two old school teams. Playing for the Super Bowl, so hopefully that's the way it'll work out. We'll see. Uh, Tom Brady's tough in the postseason. I'm I'm well aware of that, and uh, so I'm keeping I'm keeping my fingers crossed that Rodgers wants it more than he does, and the team wants it for Rodgers and for the memory of Ted Thompson
2: and a lot of other things. So it should be a good game going to be a great game. Hey, hey, Jim, you know, thank you for being here. You know, um, people ask uh, guy and me all the time, what, what do you love most about being on CNBC and doing fast money? And my answer is routinely um, just some of the people we've gotten to meet over the years. You are one of them. You've been always so generous with your time, with just your knowledge, and obviously some of these great stories. So, you know, we really appreciate you coming on. Um, when we were putting this podcast together, um, your name was tops on the list for first guest. I know Danny is a huge fan. And and so um, I just want to say thank you um, for always being so generous with your time and your knowledge. Um, So thanks for being here.
3: My pleasure, guys. It was fun Anytime. Thank you, Jim. All right,
0: guys. Go go Pack Go. go. Well, that was a great Jim Chanos. And just I know Jim is jumping off. But what I will tell him is I was not part of a fraternity at a Jesuit university. We were not we did not have fraternities and sororities. So there you go. And I do remember Super Bowl one. And Jim matriculated this conversation right down the field. So thanks again, Jim. We appreciate it. And Danny, I know you've been known to throw a dollar or so down on uh, games, horse races, whatever. What are you thinking this weekend, real quick?
1: I agree with with Jim. It's going to be a close game. Gun to my head, I'll take the three and a half or four points in Tampa Bay, although I'm rooting for Green Bay. And I think the Bills beat the Chiefs, whether Mahomes plays or not. And I like the money line, plus 140. So for those people out there... That have a Robin Hood account, that have the DraftKings account, and um, that have a Coinbase account. All that stuff you keep losing and making in stocks, go back into the DraftKings account and bet the plus plus one forty on the on the Bills. And I think it's probably Bills pack Super Bowl old school passing of the torch of the quarterbacks. Uh, four points, to,
3: four points uh, is a lot to give to giving Tom Brady four points in a championship game is a
1: lot.
0: But that it's going to be high scoring. I that, think it's going to be worries. high scoring. That it's going to be high scoring.
1: I agree.
3: Dan,
0: Nathan, anything north of Croton on the Hudson is upstate New York. So I know you grew up upstate New York. What are your thoughts on this games?
2: Well, listen, you know, I grew up in the late 80s, 90s in, in Syracuse, New York. And those Buffalo Bills, they had uh, a penchant for winning the AFC championship and then just falling flat um, in the Super Bowl here. So I, I'm with you guys. I like pack bills. And I think the pack, I think the pack are going to roll this weekend, to be very frank with you.
0: Yeah, I agree with that. I think the Packers of Green Bay, for you uh, coming to America fans out there, are going to smoke Tampa Bay. I think Tampa Bay got a break play in New Orleans who was just not that good. And I think the Bills, regardless of who's behind center, they could have Len Dawson behind center this weekend. I think the Bills are going to win. And I know Len Dawson is older now, so it doesn't really matter. Anyway, the, Jim Chanos, thank you so much. Dan Nathan, thank you. Obviously, Danny Moses, thank you. You can follow us on Twitter. On the Tape pod. You can follow me at Guy Adami. Dan Nathan is at Risk Reversal. Danny Moses is at DMoses34. We'll get into that 34 at another time, but this was On the Tape. We went off the tape with Jim Chanos. It was a great conversation. Hope to see you all again next week.